Hello and welcome back to Popcorn. As noted previously, I've figured out some of the other problems I was experiencing with my computer software that was making me sound weird while I was preparing for the previous episode, which is good, because otherwise this recording would sound weird too, and we wouldn't want to be sounding weird now, would we? Would we? Well, the truth is I don't mind sounding a little bit weird, because really I am a little bit weird. But I mean, some of my ideas are weird, some of my thoughts are weird. I don't really want my voice sounding weird, which is funny in itself, because I screwed up quite badly in recording today's episode the first time around. I used the Audacity software to mess with my voice, and then I couldn't fix the problems that I had created, so I was faced with a choice. Release an episode that sounded as though it had been recorded by Mickey Mouse on Quaaludes, or record the entire thing all over again. Some of you are going to be glad that I chose to re-record this episode. Some of you are not. You know who you are. I've been talking a lot about Stephen King's book, The Stand, pretty much non-stop since I started, so I thought I'd branch off on a different topic for a little bit. Today I want to talk about one of my favorite movies, which is Ridley Scott's 1982 dystopian neo-noir sci-fi cyberpunk masterpiece Blade Runner. Last episode, I suggested that you watch the movie before listening to this episode, and I hope you've been able to do that. But for the sake of clarity, perhaps I'll provide a short piece of explanation about the different editions. By the way, in case you hadn't already noticed, this program is pretty much predicated on the assumption that you've seen or read the material I'd be referring to, because there are spoilers everywhere. These are not reviews. After all, I don't feel personally obligated not to give away important plot points because I think that would make for some fairly uninteresting discussions, or at the very least, discussions of a type which are not really of the flavor that I'm aiming for. The five best-known versions of the film are the work print edition, the U.S. theatrical cut, the international cut, the director's cut, and the final cut. Of those, initially, for the first number of years that I watched the movie, the version that I was most familiar with was the work print edition, which is the edition that features Harrison Ford's voiceover monologue. I had seen the director's cut a few times in those years, but I had viewed the work print edition first, and most often, so it was the edition that I was most familiar with. The director's cut, because of the fact that it does not have Harrison Ford's voiceover monologue with it, comes across as a bit of a darker film, and also a little harder to understand. I believe the Final Cut Edition, which was the edition that was finally released in 2007, is the best of all possible editions. And this is the edition that I'll be referring to when I speak of the movie. This is the edition that was done without the voiceover from Harrison Ford, but it is also what I think of as Ridley Scott's preferred edition, the edition that the director himself probably swears by. I think it's what the director really wanted from the movie. It's unfortunate that it took so many years to come up with this edition, but this is by far my favorite one. When I decided that I was going to do an episode on the subject of Blade Runner, I realized there were a lot of possible ways of approaching that. I could have done an exposition of the entire movie, but who wants to hear a movie repeated and explained scene by scene? I mean, if you're going to listen to a podcast, one presumes you're going to want to hear something original, like, say, for example, my thoughts and insights into the film. My second thought was to explore a few specific scenes in the movie and then to talk about one specific character, and this is the direction that I decided to go. Now at this point, I had fully intended to be playing a clip from the movie that demonstrated a conversation between Deckard, Rachel, and Tyrell. However, 
Right about the time that I was getting ready to rip a clip from the DVD, I started having a nagging thought about copyright violation. And I thought to myself, how serious are copyright holders about those violations? I mean, I fully understand and support them not wanting to have entire DVDs reproduced for profit. That makes sense. But I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on TV. And I really had no idea how picky the legal system is concerning even minor reproductions. So I decided to have a look into it. I seem to recall something called fair use legislation. And in my mind, that meant a certain amount of latitude when it came to using clips that perhaps didn't exceed maybe a certain predefined length of time or for users who weren't trying to derive a profit from their use. I didn't have to dig very deeply before I discovered that that's not really what fair use means at all. I mean, it may amount to a court's deciding what amount of copyrighted material I can use without permission, but this would have to be after the fact. In other words, the courts need to decide what constitutes fair use after having reviewed the case. So I can't just use whatever copyrighted material I want and then claim fair use because I wasn't profiting by it or because I think I have a certain right to use copyrighted material. We all have certain rights when it comes to copyrighted material, but these are limited and don't generally extend beyond the right to view whatever copyrighted material we have lawfully purchased for viewing in our own homes without deriving a profit from it. I can't claim fair use until a court says I can, but I don't want to go to court in the first place. It's a bit of a catch-22. Another website I found indicated a more lenient interpretation of fair use, but it still seemed to agree with the first source that my use could only be classified as fair use if it qualified, suggesting again that a court would need to be involved to make that qualification. Now, it was around about that time that I came across a video on YouTube from a lawyer making certain recommendations about copyrighted material. Basically, he suggests that the easiest way to get around using copyrighted material without being sued for it is to get permission from the copyright holder. Which, duh, that should have been obvious, I guess. But then he went on to imply that while he encouraged writing to copyright holders to ask permission to use copyrighted material, there are potentially as many different possible responses to that question as there are copyright holders themselves. And that even if I were to write to copyright holders, to ask permission, it could take weeks or even months before I heard an answer back. You guys have been pretty patient so far, waiting for new episodes, but I doubt if I would even be able to maintain my own interest in this program if I had to wait months before making new episodes. So I reluctantly decided against using the audio clips in this narrative. Instead, I'll give you a general idea of what went on in the scene. So the first scene I want to talk about is the scene in which Deckard meets both Rachel and Terrell for the first time. Those three are the three characters in the scene. Deckard is played by Harrison Ford. He's a police officer whose job it is to track down and terminate renegade humanoids, which are called replicants. As a point of interest, the word terminate is never used in the movie. The expression used by the characters is retirement which comes across as a somewhat euphemistic way to describe someone being murdered. Dr. Eldon Tyrell, played by Morgan Paul, is the head of the Tyrell Corporation, the company that manufactures the replicants, and Rachel, played by Sean Young, is Tyrell's assistant. The scene begins with an introduction between Rachel and Deckard, followed by a little small talk. 
She seems to be teasing him a little, only half serious, but so far as we can tell, Deckard doesn't have much of a sense of humor, so her banter kind of falls flat. She asks him if he's ever retired a human by mistake. He bluntly responds by saying no, and nothing more. She persists by suggesting, but in your position that is a risk. It may be a question, but the inflection when she says it is somewhat ambiguous, so it's a little difficult to tell. And at any rate, Deckard doesn't get the chance to respond, because at this point, Tyrell has entered the scene. Now, it's important to remember that this scene is layered with levels of meaning, as a lot of scenes are in a lot of movies. I hadn't noticed this for a number of years, but there's something significant about this scene that jumped out at me just the other day while I was thinking about it. Something that sort of speaks to the nature of Tyrell's personality quite strongly. And that's this. Apart from his dismissal of her, Tyrell barely speaks to Rachel at all in this scene. The only thing he says to her the entire time is at the end of the scene, would you step out for a few moments, Rachel? Now that may not seem significant if you haven't seen the movie, but if you have seen the movie, you know how significant these three characters are. They are the three characters with probably the most screen time in the entire movie. It's one of those things that you can't unsee once you've seen it, like certain kinds of optical illusions. When she introduces Tyrell to Deckard, Mr. Deckard, Dr. Elton Tyrell, not only does Tyrell not acknowledge her, he doesn't even acknowledge what she said. Instead of responding graciously to her introduction, he plows ahead as if she hasn't spoken at all. For Tyrell, Rachel doesn't even seem to exist. For those of you who are paying attention, this is the first indication that Tyrell may not be the kindly old man that he seems to be on the surface. Now, it's hard to tell where he's coming from in a metaphorical sense. He asks, is this to be an empathy test? And the question comes out sounding imperious, mocking, condescending, as though Deckard's chosen profession is unworthy of his time. Yes, he could be genuinely curious and attempting to gather information about what Deckard is doing, but somehow it doesn't really feel that way. We don't know very much about Dr. Tyrell at this point, but we already know that we don't like him very much. He's cocksure in that way that older, wealthy men sometimes get, and he's definitely entitled. Someone who's so accustomed to getting his way that he never dreams it might not happen. Tyrell reminds me of something I once heard about the lovable curmudgeon character archetype. Most such characters really are just mean old men. They're not crusty on the surface and soft and squishy underneath. They're just jerks. This is my impression of Dr. Tyrell. He comes across as refined and sophisticated, and he may very well be both of those things, but under the surface, he's also a callous, unkind old man. There's also something to be said for the fact that as their creator, he probably knows more than anyone about replicants, so for him to even be asking these questions sounds somewhat patronizing. There's something else in the beginning of this scene, too. Although logically, it seems as though Tyrell is referring to the Voigt-Kampf test when he asks whether or not this is to be an empathy test, we could just as well infer that he is actually addressing Rachel's questions to Deckard. This is not that likely, especially if we assume that, as I was saying, he never speaks to Rachel in the scene, but for the sake of argument, let's suppose that he is addressing her. 
It puts a whole new spin on what he's saying right at that moment. If he's asking her if this is to be an empathy test rather than Deckard, then it makes us look at him differently. He's almost certainly not speaking to Rachel, but what if he is? Well, if he is, then he's mocking her. As weird as that might be. I say it's weird because why would he be mocking her? I guess he might if he's the tyrant I think he is. He certainly proves himself to be a tyrant later on in the movie, and I'll get to that in a minute. After the meeting with Tyrell, Rachel goes to see Deckard at his apartment. She's emotionally distraught, and she says to Deckard, I don't know why he told you what he did, meaning why he told Deckard that Rachel was a replicant. Deckard tells her to go talk to Tyrell, and she says rather plaintively, he wouldn't see me. Tyrell is continuing with his habit of total disregard for Rachel. And herein lies one of the fundamental... Tyrell is continuing with his habit of total disregard for Rachel, and herein lies one of the fundamental keys of the plot. Replicants are not human. Tyrell calls them more human than human, but that's just marketing shtick as far as I'm concerned. The truth is, he really thinks of replicants as commodities, products to be bought and sold. He doesn't think of them as human at all. And Rachel is no exception. In fact, she is the example that proves that this perception of Tyrell's attitude is correct. Tyrell sounds as though he's teasing Deckard when he talks about the different components of the void conf test, and some of his questions don't even sound like questions. They come out almost as statements instead. It's as though, at this point in his line of questioning, Tyrell has grown bored of the entire business and is no longer able to maintain his interest. Now, Deckard, of course, is no fool. He spent a career in a field in which he is required to detect abnormal physical and emotional responses in people, and it's made him ultra-sensitive to the emotions of others. He is picking up on Tyrell's sarcasm. You can hear it in his voice when he responds, but his response, while intended to be presumably strident and brusque, has kind of a forlorn quality of weakness about it, as though he's offering a pittance of a defense and he knows it. We call it Void Comp for short. This, you may notice, is not really much of an answer to Tyrell's questions. Whether that's because Deckard has never really bothered to think about the answers to these questions before, or because he's just short-tempered with Tyrell, is difficult to tell. Perhaps Deckard is conceding that Tyrell's questions, while demeaning and condescending, are essentially rhetorical and don't really require a direct answer. Tyrell, on the other hand, is no fool either. He knows when he has the upper hand. He pushes ahead in that demanding, privileged way of his. Ignoring Rachel's introduction, he imperiously demands that Deckard demonstrate the test. When Deckard asks whether Tyrell is to be the subject, Tyrell seems amused in that pitying way of his. Try her. Again, his words can be interpreted in two ways, gently condescending or paternalistically rude. Neither is particularly pleasant. Here's another interesting thing about this scene. Tyrell doesn't speak to Rachel, but Rachel doesn't speak to him either. In fact, although you could technically say that Tyrell speaks to Rachel in his dismissal of her when he is finished with her, she doesn't even give him that much. She never once speaks to him. But there is a moment right after he has dismissed her when she gets a look on her face that tells you volumes about how she feels about him. It's only there for a split second. If you blink, you'll miss it. But if you're paying attention, you can see it. It's almost comical. It's a look that's almost a juvenile eye roll, a look that says, well, fine, be that way. 
but she's either careful not to let him see it or else he's simply too pompous and self-important for it to even occur to him to look in her direction. Later on, he shows several other unpleasant characteristics as well. When Sebastian goes to see him, when Roy uses him as leverage to get into Tyrell's apartment, Tyrell is quite condescending to him as well. He makes a very interesting speech to Roy, but it starts out in a patronizing fashion. The facts of life. From there, the speech immediately gets highly technical. At first, it seems as though Tyrell is deliberately trying to intellectually outpace Roy with complex methodological language. The only problem with that is that Roy has no trouble keeping up with him and even confidently contributes some suggestions to the discussion himself. It seems that Tyrell is incapable of being anything less than paternalistically autocratic to anyone. He's even condescending to Roy when he gives him the facts of life speech. It's actually significant that he acts this way, specifically toward Roy, since Roy thinks of him as his father. But over the course of the scene, an interesting thing happens. Tyrell gradually becomes less and less confident and we start to see more of Roy's true self. Tyrell starts out fairly sure of himself, but interestingly, there's an argument to be made that he knows right from the very beginning of the scene what is ultimately going to happen to him. He's invited Sebastian into the apartment, not knowing that Roy is there as well. And when Sebastian enters and hesitantly says, I brought a friend, there's a split second when we can see from Tyrell's expression that he's reevaluating the situation. He's invited Sebastian in, not this pale-faced monster Sebastian has in tow, and he's not pleased about Roy being there. Although there's no doubt he knows immediately who Roy is. He would, of course, recognize him because he designed Roy himself. But there's also a strong possibility, I think, that Tyrell has access to police reports about Roy and the other replicants because he needs to for his own safety. There's a moment in this scene preceding Dr. Tyrell's death when Roy first steps into Tyrell's apartment when we see all we need to know about what is going to happen. The knowledge of the possibility of his own demise is clearly reflected in Tyrell's face from the moment he sees Roy. It could be interpreted as surprise, since Sebastian didn't mention that Roy was with him in the elevator on the way up. Roy was feeding in the answers to the chess questions, but he was whispering so as not to be overheard by Tyrell, and there's no reason to think he was. But if we're being honest, it seems a more likely reflection of Tyrell's character that he's simply resigned. It certainly casts his behavior in the rest of the scene in an interesting light. Resigned to his fate, he nonetheless engages in a spirited discussion with Roy about the facts of life, as seen from the point of view of a replicant and his father. Tyrell's demeanor is interesting here. He seems to vacillate between a hostage mentality, you can see that he fears Roy from the way he continually backs up from him as Roy advances, and a scientist, delighting in knowledge and perhaps using it against Roy. One imagines that a part of him is also somewhat angry at the intrusion. In spite of the high-stakes nature of this encounter, a part of Tyrell is still the entitled rich man who is nettled at having had his privacy infringed upon. Now, on reflection, maybe I'm not quite right about the expression of resignation. Another way of interpreting Tyrell's initial reaction would be perhaps to say that it's an expression of deep slyness. When I watch the scene, I sometimes think that at that exact moment, Tyrell has grasped the entirety of the situation, but that he also believes that he has thought of a way out of it and is congratulating himself on being so clever. What that way out might have been is, of course, impossible to say, since by the end of the scene, Tyrell has been murdered in a gruesome fashion. 
having most assuredly not thought of an escape route. I see him cast his eyes down for only a second when Roy walks in and I think, that's it. That's the moment right there. A split second when he sees what's going on and has challenged himself to find a way out of it. But the scene, unfortunately, most certainly does not proceed that way. Tyrell has allowed his pride to get the better of him. He is now completely certain that he has control of the situation, and so he allows Roy to take a hold of his skull and gently hold it between his hands. It's the last move he'll ever voluntarily make. At first, Roy caresses him like a lover, kissing him full on the mouth, and then within seconds, begins to squeeze Tyrell's head, breaking the bones and crushing his skull. You can see the exact moment when Tyrell realizes that he's gotten himself in too deep, but of course by then it's far too late for him. And the only thing left in the scene is his death agonies as Roy gruesomely gouges out his eyes and leaves his lifeless body on the ground. Going back to Stephen King, for his fans and fans of the Dark Tower series, there's something about this scene that calls to my mind the death of Walter. The moment when he imagines he might have the upper hand and still be able to escape the grasp of Mordred is the moment when it's all over. Did Dr. Tyrell deserve to die this way? That's not for me to say. I'm not judge, jury, or executioner, only a disinterested observer. On the one hand, it could be said that Tyrell was a nasty piece of work, and one could make an argument that he got what he deserved. On the other hand, if you believe in justice or mercy, even for people who don't technically deserve it, Tyrell's death is definitely a tragedy. Nonetheless, he's a fictional character in a work of speculative fiction. All in all, I don't think a lot of people were too upset about his passing. Okay, enough for today. Next episode, I'll finish up with The Stand. In the past couple of years, I've been hearing something repeated over and over again with regard to consumption of cultural consumer products such as news media. Essentially, if you don't want to find yourself inside an echo chamber where everything you read is simply a reflection of everything you believe, then maybe it's a good idea to explore some ideas you don't feel 100% comfortable with. So, in that vein, I'm going to take a bit of an unusual approach and talk about everything that is wrong with the book. Because I found that when you study a book in detail, you'll find out lots of great things about it that maybe you didn't notice before, but you're also likely to learn some things about it that maybe weren't so stellar. One quick note before I go, I very much hope that I haven't violated any copyright laws with this episode for a couple of reasons. First of all, of course, I don't want to get sued, but I also have an enormous amount of respect for those who worked so hard to produce this film, and I wouldn't want them to ever think otherwise unlikely though it may be that they would ever hear of my podcast. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the program, drop me a line at sdrost one at gmail.com. Mosey on over to my Facebook page. Check out my blog, which is barely functioning and currently on life support, uh, at stevedrost.wordpress.com. Or look me up on Twitter under the username CyberneticTiger.